0: Hello and welcome to Country Roads Confidential here at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. It is part of the holiday spectacular we are doing here, a series of end-of-the-decade podcasts. We um, threw out a really large net and asked people what they wanted to listen to and what they wanted to look back upon fondly. And I would think after doing this preparation, not so fondly, I don't know how, how it's possible to look back at the past... 10 seasons of football in particular, not rub your temples or scratch your head a little bit, but also feel pretty good about a lot of the talent that came through here fairly consistently across 10 seasons. um, Very eventful time, and you're reminded of all these things and so many stories and subplots and twists and turns, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, even if you will, for the Mountaineers, that this should be a fun exercise. It was pretty difficult getting to a depth chart that we settled on. But if you know what's, Chris Anderson and I love depth charts. <laughs> what we do. This one, however, Chris, really tested us,
1: did it not? It did. I, I'm. Pre- I was already prepared for my disagreements with you, or or not disagreements, but you telling me that I have guys in wrong positions because of inside, outside, wild cards, and all that. Um, but. Man, just going through, trying to figure out, I think we talked about it right before we got on, looking at it and trying to decide, are, are we picking guys who had one amazing season, like say at the start or end of the decade, or a guy that maybe started two years as a, a decent starter and, and had a couple years as a backup? Is that is that better than one amazing year and nothing else, or what? Uh, it was tough. I. I You know, there's a few obvious picks, but once I got going, it was I spent a lot more time than I thought I was going to on this.
0: I probably should be clear. We're doing football right now, and let's go over how we're going to do this. It's too vast to cover it in just one episode, and people said, hey, take your time on this. Don't cram a decade of offense and defense into one episode, and that's a good idea. So we're going to split it up into two episodes, and we'll follow later on with a basketball episode. That'll be one episode because that's confined to – We just went with 13 players because there's 13 scholarships. Um, And that is where the one year thing becomes really interesting because, for example, the 2010 season, they went to the final four, but they only played, I don't know, 20 games in 2010 that year. A pretty good run with some really good players that, for example, would you include Deshaun Butler on your all decade team? (laughs) Probably not. Um, And there's a lot of situations like that with football because, You know the transfer era, how long it takes for players to find their groove, and then that could be their last season. And there's one or two in particular that you think about it, how can you not have them on an all-decade team relative to what they did in one or two seasons? But you also say, wow, there are people who were here for four years who had superior stats, which is kind of a weird thing to think about too. Um, And here's how we're going to do football. We're trying to make it as traditional of the two-deep as we can Relative to what West Virginia looked like for a decade. And this was pretty much a spread formation offense. Not a spread offense all the time. Um, Different iterations under Bill Stewart. And then Dana Holgerson had um, his air raid. But even his air raid looked different with some personnel at different times. But if you kind of lay one depth chart over another for 10 years, you kind of find some similarities. So we're going to go with two quarterbacks, two running backs, two tight ends, 10 offensive linemen four outside receivers, two slot-slash-inside receivers, and then two what we're going to call wild-card receivers because maybe they're good enough to be outside guys but not good enough to be in the top four, or good enough to be an inside guy but not good enough to be in the top two, or maybe they played both. I don't know. So that's going to be kind of up to us. It's also kind of a little bit of wiggle room for us. But um, that's how we're going to assemble the offense. We'll worry about the defense when we get to that. But as traditional as we can in offense and as consistent as we can because of how the offenses did line up, Um, across time Uh, Chris I had a bunch of discoveries as I was doing this um, about hot spots on the offense and places that weren't as good across these 10 seasons and we can get into this right now Um, what was the biggest takeaway personnel wise maybe position maybe a player a strength or weakness as you tried to put this together
1: well I think First off, when you think of West Virginia over the last 10 years, you're obviously thinking wide receiver or any receiver, any of those receivers' positions. That was tough. Uh, I may have fudged the positions a little bit to squeeze some guys in at inside receiver slash wild card slash wide receiver. Um, Let me ask you this before I I continue. Did you do first team and second team? like You split it like you have a first team and then a second team, or did you just – pick 2. No ores here. I'm not an or guy. These okay, all, good. First team, second team. Good, 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 good. Cuz I also ran into a problem at offensive line. Like I I know they've had some good offensive linemen over the years, but a little sneak peek here, I like cannot believe who I have as the sixth offensive lineman on my team right now, which would be, you know, the first guy on the second team. Cause he might be, I mean, he he was good, but, and he's also probably having the best NFL career Mm -hmm. of anyone on the offensive line, maybe anybody on offense. And he's my sixth offensive lineman for like, you just focusing on West Virginia and what he did there. Um, So offensive line was, was the one that really, especially when you can't, you know, you don't have stats to kind of back up things. You have to look at it objectively and, and decide on your own what you remember with your own two eyes. I'm with you hundred percent.
0: I didn't have a hard time getting to five, four, five, six. I think you can juggle a little bit and be okay. I think it's a pretty clear three, four, five, six, who knows? But honestly, between four and let's say 13, right? Mm-hmm. Five, six, all the way to 13, I guess, um, are some pretty good college players in there who were either okay recruits that developed or guys who were, projects a little bit who you had to look at in the true sense that West Virginia has to recruit offensive linemen where you say hey this guy's part of the 2011 class we're not going to see him until 2014 probably um so let's see what he looks like you know in a crystal ball sense here and then a lot of those guys did turn out and become good players too so um uh, your your preview there has me thinking that we're going to be on the same page on some of these things so I feel better because I figured this might devolve into like a yelling (laughs) and accusation (laughs) And all of a sudden, I'm returning your Christmas gifts conversation. So I don't think that's going to happen. What stood out to me was receiver. I would say, with maybe one exception, not a ton of like four-year impact guys. Guys who splashed for different reasons for a brief amount of time. And if you think about some of the players who you figure are going to be on that list, they might have been here four years, but they only had one or two wow years. They might have only been here for one or two years. Um, and then the guys who were here for four years, none of them really had a wow season. They just kind of made the impact over time, which does count. Don't get me wrong there. Um, but when you think about the offense they've had and some of the talent they've had, you think, wow, it's going to be really hard to make a list there. Uh, I didn't have a hard time doing it. I had a hard time sorting it out and figuring out you know, who would be a starter, who would be a second teamer, so to speak, in this exercise. But um, flash in the pan is not right. But people who the star burned bright, but it burned pretty quickly, too yeah
1: you ready to get started
0: yeah um let's go let's go in the order that everybody probably wants us to here um the the offensive line is probably the most intriguing for me just because of what you said but let's start let's start with quarterback because that's the big one here um I don't think there's any doubt who the two are my two will go chronologically right now geno smith and will greer correct
1: Man, no Skylar Howard love on this podcast. Uh, yeah, me. That's not only chronologically. Let me jump the gun and say that's how I have them first and second team. You have Gino, Gino. over Greer. I do. Explain. Well, first off, I you know I don't want to do the whole broad statistical thing, but obviously Greer was only here two years. Gino's was here. Gino was here four. But even if you take Gino's final two years, uh, he threw for more touchdowns, ran for more yards. And over a thousand, and threw for over a thousand more yards than Greer did. Um, And part of that was because Greer got hurt, which we also have to take into account. He missed a couple of the biggest games that he could have played in while at West Virginia because of injury. But in a couple other games, uh, for instance, the Iowa State game, um, and it pains me to say it because statistically he did well the Oklahoma game, the 59, 56 to Oklahoma, but he also had the two just egregious fumbles that were returned for 14 points. Um, thinking about that now, it's not to say that Gino didn't have rough games in the losses that, uh, West Virginia suffered while he was the quarterback, but, and maybe that's a recency what's, uh, bias, but in the wrong direction. Um, but I just feel like Gino kind of did more and won a couple more big games than Greer did, and that's why he got the edge for me. Losing record against five hundred teams for Gino, but Ooh.
0: same as Greer. I mean, what were Greer's big wins? The Texas win is figures is clearly it, I would think. But um, it's difficult to to really look at you know intangible factors like that. Um, the fact that you win an Orange Bowl and you go ballistic in that game is really hard to ignore. And then I I think people forget how good he was, like how good he was in 2012. And in particular, the final handful of games, he might've been a little bit overrated at the start of the season. I think he was clearly, clearly underrated at the start of the season. At the end of the year, 71%, 4,200 yards, 42 touchdowns, six interceptions, um, was just really good. 14 touchdowns, no picks against non-conference teams. And that was four games that year, if you count um, the bowl game, which you remember didn't go very well. Um, but just game by game for a team that didn't really run the ball very well or consistently or have great running backs, um, he just delivered every game. And, I mean, a bad game for him. I'm trying to think of the game. When they got bludgeoned by Kansas State, um 143 yards, one touchdown, two picks. Everything else, you know, four touchdowns, one pick. Five touchdowns, no picks. And then, again, don't forget this. Again, Kansas, of course, 23 for 24, 407 yards, 17 yards per attempt, three touchdowns, one pick. And the one pick went through J.D. Wood's hands and was intercepted. Um, he should have been 24 for 24 for, like, 430 yards. <laughs> um and uh, that that that's something I'll never forget. Is that I remember talking to Jake Spavitt all after the game, and he kind of had this, this kind of like, wow, expression where that was a really good performance. So yeah, I, I agree. One one two, Geno Greer, but that's a really good one two though, and probably indicative of how the how the season went there. Um, not as easy, running back. Um, I don't think we're going to argue here. Number one is Wendell Smallwood. Correct.
1: Correct. I was saying I I didn't have too much of a debate here. Maybe a little bit on the second and third, but yes, Smallwood was clearly number one for me.
0: Great Uh, career, Um, dual threat early, not so much later, but that's because he was so important running the ball. A monster season. Um, It's it's just hard to take away what he did. Huge huge numbers when it really mattered too, but when he was really good the offense was really good he had 1500 yards they ran for almost 3000 yards that year and th- and that's why like he was he was just excellent um number 2 is hard though um i'm curious where you went on this one and, and where where i went on this one you begin
1: um so i went with i i know there was maybe a couple others that might be in the conversation here originally cuz I, I don't know how you how you started compiling your list, your players that you are considering. But for me, I basically went through the participation charts from 2010 up to you know 2019. And was the first thing I did was write down the names that I remembered off the top of my head at each position, then check the participation charts to see if there's anybody I forgot. And I was like, oh, Noel Devine. How did I forget him? I was thinking last decade, uh, 2010 was the only good year. Uh, or the only year that he played this decade, and right. it was worse than his sophomore and junior year. He was out for me, and I settled on Charles Sims again one year. But I, I which pains me to do, I, I was debating him and Justin Crawford, but oh, I, it, like it, the other Justin Crawford issues. But he looks statistically, Justin Crawford is the only other back. To crack a thousand yards in a season and he did it twice. Mm-hmm. So who do you got? Who are who you ooing who about? I'm with you on
0: Sam's because of his impact. Thousand yards, ten touchdowns, a really good dual threat player. He was the offensive newcomer of the year. Um, I could understand going for um for Sam's, I could understand your pick's fine too. I went with Russell Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, 2000 yards in a career, pretty good. Um, believe he had 20 rushing touchdowns, had 300 yards, no, 500 yards receiving. So, you're talking pretty good numbers there. Trouble is, um, that's a three year career with no thousand yard season, had some injuries. Um, but his yards per carry were always really good. And when he was, when he was right, he was tough. I mean, he was a guy that could get you a hundred something yards away on a defense. He was a great tandem with Smallwood um I, I felt like he got derailed by timeshare stuff and maybe he could have taken over but that's a guy who for three years was pretty consistent when he was healthy the high end was there for him i liked his longevity it it, it came down to between him and sims i really wrestled with this but i like the fact that he was there for three years i think if sims was here for two years that's an easier pick if he's here for three years you're probably making a run at smallwood at that point but I did kind of favor the decade aspect of it too. I do think that what Sims did in his one year was terrific. He delivered like he was supposed to. Um, but I also think that while you may not like Shell and the fact that he didn't run away from people and the fact that he never really became that five star player that everybody was very excited about out of Pennsylvania, um, those numbers in three years are still pretty significant to me.
1: So, but no love for Crawford, who played two and had 200 more rushing yards and averaged. Over a yard more per carry.
0: Not going to lie to you.
1: It's the it's the post. Colored uh, a little I mean,
0: bit differently for me now. Um, yeah, I liked him a lot when he was here. Um, that's that's a hard thing for me to do. Um, knowing what we know now. And then. Right. I don't think anybody did then. But um, I think when you look back at a decade. It's hard not to remember something like that too. And I think if you look back at a guy like Shell. I, I think it's really fun man. Always one of my favorite guys to talk to. And for three years again, like took some beatings and played in there and just that didn't stand side by side in my comparison. But I just think when I look back at the decade, I think obviously more fondly of shell, but I also think about a guy who meant more for a longer period of time too. Gotcha. Yeah. Also also Crawford walked out in the bowl game too. That's true. That that was part of my metric. So, and again, Gino did and some other guys we're going to talk about did too. Excuse me, not Gino, uh, Greer did and some other guys too, but. Um, I think it's a little bit different in those situations, too. Crawford, I think, was just kind of ready to roll there, too. Uh, Tight end. Uh, I'll go first on this one, if you don't mind, because I think it's pretty simple. But I also think it's kind of weird that we're talking about tight ends at the end of a decade where perhaps the hallmark of this is that there were periods of time where there was no tight end. How do we get here?
1: We're talking about tight ends. I I don't know, because I'm curious to hear who you're going to say, because I will tell you this. I fudged my number two because I'm not sure he counts as a tight end, but um, I believe I saw him listed as a fullback slash tight end. Perfect. Who I went
0: obviously with Wesco, number one, um, mm-hmm. a guy that, man, if they had another year with him or if they had realized what I think that they thought early last season, which was that he was one of their best offensive players. It took them until the Baylor game last year to realize that. But I think if you built a season around him or if he had been able to go for two full years, um, We're talking about a, I mean, probably an all-timer when you think about that because how popular he was in just a fraction of one year, blowing guys up and then just kind of taking over the running game and also doing some good stuff. But he would have had huge receiver numbers, I think. And, I mean, he would have had two years of great film. No problem with him, number one. And then I went Cody Clay, number two, because he was a guy that, he may be who you're talking about, but steady, um, selfless, and quietly was a hinge for them when they moved from this, you know, wild haired air raid offense to kind of a ground and pound offense. And they were a guy that they really ran behind with him and used him as almost a six
1: offensive lineman. So he was in the conversation for me and he would have been my pick if I was like really kind of sticking to the true quote unquote tight end. But I went Elijah Wellman. I, wasn't sure where he would fit i mean he was he contributed all four years he was a major piece to that offense when he was playing fullback uh you know he, for his time here to officially on the roster was listed as a fullback slash tight end um you know not a lot, obviously not a lot of statistics but neither did Cody clay but they're both similar in that they um filled a major role clearing space acting like a blocker uh, but i felt like at some point i had to give Wellman some love here for for what he did and that seemed like a good spot for him for me
0: I like it. I'm okay with that. I'm not gonna call you a dummy or anything like that. I think it's a good pick too I have a little bit of like fatigue on Wellman, I think or maybe it's like a bad memory because I forget the year, but they were having a hard time in the red zone and then There was a trend where they scored like seven straight red zone touchdowns Um, And it turned out that he was on the field for every one of those plays and not some of the plays that failed And I was wondering, huh, this is strange. So I forget what it was, but it was like five games, or five straight touchdowns they had had scored on. And then they went into the next game, and it happened again where he let let on a play outside, and they got in, and then he caught a touchdown pass. And I asked Holgerson about it after the game about, hey, what has he done to solve your problems in the red zone? You know, this is seven straight red zone touchdowns, and he's been on the field for each one of them. Uh, He just caught a pass. (laughs) I don't know if he was trying to keep the secret secret and he was upset that I had like unlocked the crypt or if he just didn't want to give a fullback credit for, for catching a pass. And my, my intention was not to say, wow, fullback catches pass. My intention was to say, hey, they got their good players in the field and solved a problem. But I thought back and I even read back this week about that and the interaction that he and I had um, not the first and not the last awkward interaction he and I had at a press conference. But again, memories. They all come flooding back to you here too. So but mm-hmm. I like the pick. I did struggle with the two. I just thought that when you look at how the season's turned for Holgerson's career in particular, they really started running the ball and Clay was a big part of that. But Wellman, man, he was he was excellent in what he did too. And maybe maybe more valuable because he could really put his hand in the ground and be a fullback too. So um, yeah, your definition certainly sufficient there. Um here's where we're gonna get a little muddy, I think. Offensive line. Let's go with our first. Wait, do
1: we skip receiver or are we saving that for last?
0: I'm just kind of trying to go in sequence here back to front. Okay. All right. So let's go offensive line. Um I think we much rather close to the fireworks on offense or on receiver, I think a little bit. Offensive line. Let's go with our our top 5 here. Um and I don't have a tackle, tackle guard, guard, center. I just have who I Me think is better, but it does kind of fit in a little bit too. I don't think any question. Colton McKibbits, Yadnikajust, and Tyler Orlowski are
1: three of the top 5. Do you have them in yours? Correct, and and you're right. I I have now that I look at it. I didn't really think about it. I got center, tackle, center, guard, tackle, tackle, and kind of a swing guy that could be guard or tackle. So yeah, I guess I got a five. Here's we, yeah,
0: we may wiggle, we may not, based on what you said about the guy who's maybe having the the best career um in the NFL. Um, I had Quentin Spain. I have him on there. I'm
1: thinking of another guard that is having a nice NFL career as my sixth, and then I had Don Barclay. Okay, yeah, we got the same top five. Okay, but... so McKibbitts, Kajust, Orlowski,
0: Spain, and Barclay. Um, right. Barclay was a very good offensive lineman across different coaching staffs and different position coaches, too, and was probably, you're right, out of position. He was a tackle mostly, and they thought he'd be a really good guard in the NFL, and certainly he's done that. He's survived for a long time in the league. Um, but, again, for top end, that's an excellent top five.
1: Yeah, I, I think – when I was looking at it, I was trying to remember who who all had all-conference. And right there, there's, there were four of them. And it was Cajust, McKivitz, Orlowski, and Barclay. That was it. So I don't want to base it entirely off of all-conference honors. But uh, that kind of set the stage for me. And, and and then I had to debate the other spot. And, and Quinton Spain, I felt like, could roll to a couple of different spots and was really dominant once they put him inside and kept him inside
0: what would the offensive line look like now with those five? Who are your, we know who the center is, but who are your guards and tackles?
1: Uh, Spain's inside for me at guard and yeah, Barkley guard uh, and then McKivitz and could, and yeah, it would have worked out nice for me. It's, it's wild to me to think
0: about that, about how by need or by competition level, an outside guy can play inside. Not necessarily the way around a little bit, but we've seen inside guys in college really excel too. um, on the outside. Like uh, Don was a, Probably a prototypical guard and played really well. Uh, a little undersized, but was great with his leverage and his technique. And, boy, that guy had a mean streak where if he got going and, and he knew he could rally you and he could put you on the ground, he would do it over and over and over, which is the antithesis of Spain, um, who was a giant of a man, but really a m- gentle guy, too, where soft-spoken, really a polite kid It was fun to talk to and joke around with, too. But um, conversely, Yodney and Colton – had the same demeanor a little bit, you know, intelligent, fun guys to speak to, but they could really get salty. Um, what do you recall of those guys and how they played and how they fit
1: into those spots? I, I'm with you on Spain. I think that you could not have described them better because I remember when he was coming out of high school, he was he was big. I mean, he's always been big. Uh, I think his playing weight, uh, when it was ideal, was around 320, 330, but he was like 360, in high yeah. school when I saw him at Petersburg and, and I wasn't even working. And this was pre me doing this job. I just happened to be living uh, near Petersburg and saw him in high school games and he was massive and just seeing him kind of turn into uh, you know, reshape his body and then moving inside and always felt like, I think he was listed as a tackle, always felt he was best inside. Mm-hmm. And then like you said, I, I think it, he need, he needed to get meaner. I think that was part of his problem. But, man, he was he was about if, – if he had a mean streak, if he had Yodney's mean streak or Don Barclay's mean streak, and he would have been the perfect guard in my idea.
0: Left out Tyler, too. One of the smartest guys that I can remember covering. And I would say, uh, as from a leadership perspective, for a center, everybody – fell in behind him he was he was
1: very empowering and very uh polarizing in a good way though and now working with the team as a ga and helping out with the offensive line and and connecting with yeah <laughs> the center of the future zach frazier sitting on the front page right now the two of them walk
0: around together at camp wasn't sure where you were going. He connects with other people on the sidelines, so to speak, and has no hesitation to do that, which is not a surprise and, and not discouraging either. I think it's not long before he has a whistle and he's on a full-time staff somewhere too. Um, second line, I, I'll go through mine here and we can talk about how you differ, but there's a, a long list of candidates here. I went with Kyle Bosch, Mark Glowinski, Adam Pankey, Josh Jenkins and Jeff Braun.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. But I'll say this. There are a handful of players who I said are comparably skilled and accomplished, and if I fell and dropped my stack of papers and lost that one, I would have a hard time assembling my second five because I would probably just think of the first five that came to my mind who would be similar to that list there too. But good players, definitely serviceable starters and second-line players for this conversation. But um, there's a crowd there too. How did you line yours up?
2: Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So I had,
1: we we weren't that different. I had, Mark Lewinsky was the the sixth guy that I was thinking about. I think he's, you know, in an an extended NFL contract deal. He's been a multi-year starter in the NFL, but focusing it solely on what he did at West Virginia uh, you know, only two years while some of these other guys that were on the first team were uh, at least two year starters, if not three year starters and four year contributors uh, and were just as good or maybe better. So I think that was why he was numbered. He was basically my sixth lineman okay. on on that front. Um, I had Panky. Panky was a no doubter for me. Uh, I had Jeff Braun. He was he was in there. I, I didn't have much debate about uh, not including him, I had Joe Madsen. Okay. I know he kind of took some flack for uh, some snaps and stuff, but multi-year starter, that was very solid, I, I felt like, uh, at the beginning of the decade. And then the 10th spot, I had a lot of debate. I had Kyle Bosch to begin with. Then I switched to Josh Sills just to piss everyone off. And then... <laughs> Um, I kind of, like you said, there's just a handful of guys that, that I would have been okay with and I settled on Bosch. I did just like he did. So I think we ended up with four of the same five. I think the only one different I had was Madsen. And who, who, who was your fifth? I had Josh Jenkins, Josh Jenkins. Um, but yeah, I, I, I debated the 10th spot between Bosch and Sills for, for some time.
0: Some other players that probably deserve a mention. Um, Tony Matteo kind of filled in in a, in a utility role, but was there when they needed him. Grant Lingafelter, similar. Um, and people kind of forget Marquise Lucas was a good player. Mm-hmm. Serviced the line in different spots as a start in the reserve. Um, got a taste of the NFL. And um, I think one of those guys who probably, if he got more attention or more consistent attention, he would have been a, a higher level player, but he was a, correct me if I'm wrong here, he was kind of an intriguing recruit who had a lot of talent, maybe not a lot of experience, um, but there were there was competition for his services, and they were very happy to get him when he got him here, right?
1: Yeah, South Florida guy that a lot of people wanted, uh, especially late in West Virginia was able to kind of swoop in and and, and get him And Like you said, he he was versatile. He could play inside, outside. Um, when he finally got the opportunity to start, he was good. And NFL teams took notice. I think he's been bouncing around on a couple practice squads and even got in a couple games. So uh certainly you know, certainly someone you you know, not first team, but somebody you'd have to consider for second team all decade. Just to put a cap on this, think about a guy like Jenkins, who was a
0: high level recruit, a guy like Braun, who was a defensive lineman and not a lot of stars next to his name, not a lot of offers. And then you're in between players like Lewinsky and Bosch who transferred in just a collection of of talents, backgrounds, and you know, potential realized there. And you find out that there's all these different values that coaches have in and looking into how they're gonna build a roster. And I think nowhere in the past 10 years is that more indicative than the offensive line, where you really have to get creative. You know, you think you think, oh, Western Pennsylvania, Southern Ohio, a lot of good linemen there. True, everybody knows that though, so you can't just rely on that too. And they they were creative. Um, they got their hands on some good players at sometimes. Yadnie had played, I think, maybe two years ago of high school football. Um, same with McKibbets. He was a basketball player first and foremost, and they guessed right on a lot of their best players in one capacity or another, too, and and really kind of a tribute. When you look back at the 10 years, which, again, is kind of the point here, um, that's how they kind of made it work. And when they had really good offensive lines to either protect one of the quarterbacks or to enable one of the running backs, um, it was a collection of players who were not organically homegrown guys or not people who were wanted somewhere else. It was people who kind of Ellis Island and found their way there and, you know, give me your transfers, your projects, your converted defensive linemen, and – Golly, it worked out, so good on them, despite a lot of turnover at the offensive line coaching position, too. Um, finally, receiver, and it sounds like this is where you and I maybe are going to butt heads. That's why I wanted to save this to the end, but um, wide receivers, let's start there. Um, I don't think there's any question who the top four are. Top two might be a little bit more difficult, but maybe not, but uh, I'll say this. My top two wide receivers, which means they were outside receivers, not inside guys, uh, Stedman Bailey, kevin white
1: okay good because see this is what i'm concerned about not that we're going to disagree on who was better than who but just to make sure i have guys in the right inside outside wild card spots mm-hmm. that you that you're making up here but yeah i got steadman bailey and kevin white as my top two wide receivers outside receivers um, i'm not making
0: it up i'm just trying to <laughs> have a conversation with
1: people. no i know but i it, I'm thinking back to that 70 man roster where I had guys that just, I just had linebacker instead of Will and Mike and Sam and bandit and everything like that. So I, I, I tried to get it this time, but yeah, I had Bailey and white and assuming we have the same uh, backup wide receivers or, you know, guys in the, assuming I have the guys in the right spot or same spots as you, inside outside wildcard I didn't have much of a debate that those were the top two
0: okay well I again and and this is fine here, but like three and four I think are okay. we might I don't these don't really have a lot of like flexibility here I don't think I want Shelton Gibson and Karan white and I'll say this like, I had a harder time getting to four, and then I know Karan was a pretty good player, especially his final two years, When and then unfortunately got sidetracked, I believe, at the end of his junior year. Um, it was on his way to big numbers, too, but it's so strange to have two players so closely in time and also in the same house, too, uh, that come through the, the same program from the same junior college and, and put up pretty good numbers together, too. But um, I forgot sometimes about how good Karan White could have been. And then Gibson... An odd decision to skip his senior year. No thousand-yard season. No 10-touchdown season. Um, did stick in the NFL for a little bit. Um, won a Super Bowl, I believe. So, but he was a, a deep threat who had a really good bond with Skylar Howard too, where you, you couldn't overthrow that guy because he was. He can get into the four threes. People said that if he was wide open, he was he was moving toward four twos. Um, but he was tough. Uh, a great home run threat outside. So four pretty good outside receivers there. Is that your three four? Oh no!
1: Okay, here's here's well, I think here's the 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 question. This is why I was about to suggest maybe we go first team all of the receivers, two outside, inside, uh, and the wild card. Uh, okay, uh, but because I have I have Quran White, yeah, he was one, uh, and I had Sheldon Gibson number five because I had Sills four. Are you counting him inside, or you don't have him at all? Lee shot probably
0: should have planned this better, huh? Um, he's on my list. He is one of my wild card guys. So let's just go. To the, let's let's finish yours. You have your three four that are the same, almost the same as my three four. Um, I put Sills as a wild card because he played so much inside and he could also play outside. And he's really the reason I put this here. Um, a lot of his touchdowns were inside plays, um, but or well, a lot of his receptions were inside plays and a lot of his big gains were inside plays. But a lot of his touchdowns, he was outside running fades or running, you know, fake out slant in plays where the, he was just a matchup problem. So they found ways to use him. He was too big and too much of a problem with, the, with his routes inside. And he was too much of a touchdown scorer outside near the goal line that they said, let's not pigeonhole him in one spot. Let's put him in a true wild card rule <laughs> and let yeah. him do a little bit. So that's why I put him there. But, yeah, I mean, when you think about him, David Sills catches touchdowns, and he did that outside. So that makes sense.
1: Okay, because that's where I had him. Because I was uh, – honestly, I was – Feeling, almost feeling bad for Shelton Gibson that I could not find him a spot. Not just that receiver, but and we'll I guess we'll get this in a few minutes, but a kick returner either. Um, yeah. So it was it was tough. I, uh, but I had it because I had him as my fifth. I actually had him in my top four, pushed him out for uh, for Corran White. So okay, so who are your wild card guys then? So wild card, I had Tavon Austin and Mario Alford.
0: Ooh, okay.
1: So I guess would you did you didn't have uh, Mario at all? I did not
0: have Mario at all. Okay. My wild cards, and people forget, I mean, his his senior year was very good. It's just that Kevin White was exploding at that same time, so that was hard to do. Uh, my wild cards are David Sills, who I just mentioned,
1: and Dekeel Shorts. Okay. See, this is where this was the positions because I got to kill shorts at the other spot. I knew this was going to happen.
0: We're going to agree on some things there. I don't want to give it away, but we're going to agree on some things. I think when we look at our eight, there's going to be a lot of similarities, which is fine. Yeah. Um, So so again, Sills, just his inside outside stuff was good for me um, to kind of create that spot. And DeKeel was uh, he was truly an inside receiver, but pretty steady for four years. Third downs was first down with him. He finally caught some balls. Um, and, and broke some tackles and ran to the end zone toward the end of his career. It was kind of a fun thing. I think like his first 16 touchdowns or something like that were all caught in the end zone. <laughs> um, and then he finally like broke a couple tackles and scored. And I think he ended up with two that were broken tackles and he scored on, or he ran away from somebody or something like that. But he was really good. I mean, they were down sometimes. He led the team in receptions as a freshman. And the offenses didn't really click. And then he just kind of produced steadily and was a very reliable player, too. Got better and better. And um, also another smart guy who... Is in coaching now. He's on the staff at Houston. If you weren't familiar with that, inside guys. I had you go 10 ahead here. Okay. Even though he started his career as an outside receiver, and I want to circle back to that in a second. Um, I had him and Gary
1: Jennings as my inside guys, and I had I had Gary Jennings as my number one, Dekeel as my number two at inside. So it, at let's run down the your my first team and your first team. My first team was Bailey, Kevin White. Gary Jennings and Tavon. Pretty good. Is that um, yours or, or mine, no? would been, mine would have been
0: Stedman Kevin White, Tavon Sills. Okay, so we we swapped Jennings and Sills, basically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, okay, I'm good with that. I want to go back for a second. Um, the 2009 team. Mm-hmm. Do you know who the leading receiver was?
1: Hmm. No. Chuck Sanders. So he was – I had him – he was the first – one of the first people on my list when I was doing my let's-just-try-to-remember-everybody thing. He was uh, one of the first people I I wrote down for inside receiver. But I think what 2010 was his last year, I believe. Right. So it was only back, the one year.
0: I went back and I looked at some things about the 2009 season, and people thought it was one of the most talented receiver groups they'd had in a while. Sanders, Ulrich Arnett. Brad Starks, Wes Lyons. Um, Those are your top four receivers. Also on that team were Tavon Austin and Stedman Bailey as true freshmen. How many passes do you think those two caught combined? Knowing what they did in their career, how many passes in 2009, their true freshman years, do you think they caught? 10. 15, 15, including zero from Stedman Bailey, who I didn't believe it then, and I can't believe it now, redshirted that year.
1: Yeah, I remember. I remember he redshirted, and I just remember Tavon got a handful of touches, and that was it. He was a wide season.
0: receiver, too. He was an outside receiver. Yeah, crazy. And then a year later, things changed. Um, Tavon moves pretty much to the inside uh, 58 catches, 787. Jock Sanders, imagine those two guys together in the slot. That's a mess um, 69 catches, 728 yards. And Stebbin, they realized, can catch 24 catches, 317, four touchdowns. Um, and again, you just saw that boy. That guy had something he could do, and he got going toward the end of the year a little bit, um, or at the beginning of the year. He was good, tailed off, and then really got a, found himself at the end. You realize, hey, they got something here, and again, he he kind of took off. Um,
1: do we want to do special teams? Uh, I on my list, I had kicker and kick returner for okay. the offensive sign.
0: My kicker is Josh Lambert. His backup is Tyler Bittenkurt. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to tell you how much time I put into this, but. Um, <laughs> and I, how much I weighed Josh Lambert's exit, but he was the best kicker in the country. He didn't win the bullet cup, but he was the best kicker in the country one year. And Bittencourt had a great career. Um, kind of got a little bit wobbly toward the end, um, but those two were, I think, really the only two consistent kickers of the decade um, until Evan Staley, I guess, a little bit, but also they handled it for seven of the 10 years. It's kind of a remarkable thing. You think about college kickers. Um, those two guys had it locked down for quite some time.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I... I, you know, I almost immediately went to Josh Lambert, thought about his exit and how horrible that senior year was. Um, but there's no denying it. I mean, he was, he was, if he hadn't screwed up that senior year and and everything gone sideways and he left, he was going to shatter every single kicking record that West Virginia has every single one. Um, so that was, aside from the issues that senior year, that was kind of a no-brainer for me. And, and yeah, Tyler Bittenkert is is on there for the other guy. I think just kind of out of – because a couple of his years were not even in this decade or one of the years was, but still he got three years in and there was no one else really that that even comes close. Yeah, Bittenkert's
0: career, 13 of 15, 10 of 17, 20, or 16 of 22, and then eleven of nineteen, so two years, but two really good years. His freshman year is great, um, and I misspoke. Uh, he only did three years. So and and Lambert did three. So six out of the ten years in the decade were two kickers who were you know back end of their career guys, which is again you think of college, you think of guys wearing like a number in the nineties. That doesn't happen all the time, and they were pretty consistent there too. And, and guys, they really liked who made big kicks too, game winners. Whether it's Pitt for Bitten Kurt, whether it's Maryland for Lambert, um, neither coach and neither player was rattled in that situation. Um, And then, since we're in my neighborhood here, you know my affinity for return men. um, I really broke this down, and I was shocked by the lack of depth (laughs) in return. Um, The punt return thing is a a barren situation. Kick returner was a lot of fun through the years, too. Um, I had... And I don't know if I might want to use an aura here or not, but Tavon was my kickoff returner, and Alford was my back up there my one of my two and I'd make them kick off punt I guess Alford never returned punts and Tavon surprisingly wasn't very good at it even though he somehow was first team preseason all big 12 punt returner one year the first year in the big 12 that was just the reputation he had Um, but he was a dangerous kickoff returner but I think people forget Alford twice in a year once against Alabama um, and God when he hit a hole and he opened up too he was impossible to catch and he was just really fun to watch glide but not a whole lot of competition there either I found
1: No, because I was when I was looking at kick returner, I felt Tavon was just really obvious. It wasn't even close. Uh, He is by far has by far the most kickoff return yards in school history, Um, so that was not much of a debate for me. But punt returner, I was like, hey, I seriously remember him being pretty darn bad as a punt returner, especially his senior year. can you tell me how many players this decade, without looking it up, have returned a punt for a touchdown? Well, Tavon, we say, we say Tavon won. wasn't
0: good at it, but he did have one, I believe.
1: He is one, and uh, and technically, technically, there is an asterisk, so it should give you a little bit of a hint. There was one more for the entire decade.
0: It's a blocked punt by a defensive back that recovered it, and I can't remember who it was.
1: Or are we calling – yeah, Marvin Gross.
0: There you he's go. The okay. only That's right.
1: other, the only other quote, technical, you know, quote-unquote punt return for a touchdown this let's, entire decade.
0: Let's talk about Tatum for a second. I could do an entire – never mind episode, series on Austin. My, my favorite player from the decade, just to be completely honest with you. Uh, so fun to talk to. So fun to watch. A personality. And to this day, if he sees you, he stops and talks to you because he's so, so friendly. He is – He's in Baltimore, and he, he is the charm in Charm City. He's just one of the best. And we say that he wasn't a very good punt returner. And, like, if you watched, he wasn't great at it, right? And I think right. he struggled with the instinct of kickoff returns, which is catch it and run, and you can't do that punt return. It's it's so chaotic and so much of an improvisation that you really have to go off script, which is amazing to me because he was so good when he went off script. Like, when things broke down and he had to dance and and. Um, juke people and make guys miss he excelled and nobody could get to his level and he wasn't good at that point at punt. and i think that sometimes he got himself into situations where um he would get caught in between do i catch it do i not because he was trying to figure out what to do and they would let it bounce he wouldn't catch it or he would catch it and then he tried to make one or two moves and you just can't do that sometimes on punt because you're going to get hit you got to get it and just try to get yardage and we say he's not very good at it and we're right um but his 2012 year he averaged 11 yards of return and had a touchdown. His 2011 year, 14 yards on punt returns. The trouble is he only returned, I think, like maybe 35 total in those two years, so not a lot, and their defense was okay and forced a lot. But historically, the numbers say he was pretty good at it. Our eyes say that he was an adventure out there, and I feel like we have to rectify this because his legacy is way too important to me. And If we sit here and say he just wasn't good at it. I don't know if that's fair or not, but the more I remember about it, and I went back and I looked at the things I wrote, I mean, the coaches kind of got on him about that, and he got on himself about that, and, like, I, I have a hard time. It's like a tug of war with my heart and my brain here, Chris. Was he good at it? Was he not? And I can't remember, and I can't figure out what the right answer is.
1: Well, I think it's also relative to how freaking horrible West Virginia has been at returning punts for the better part of two decades, I feel like now. Mm-hmm. Um, when you can get – uh, you know, I think West Virginia has over the last several years, I, I haven't checked this year, but I know we've been tracking it at the end of each season for the last four or five seasons. It's been like four of the worst punt return seasons ever in school history, like not even close. And so Tavon getting 150 punt return yards in a year is, <laughs> is monumental. Yeah. So uh, it, it is relative. And, and I agree. I I did want to take us back a little bit. You said kick returner. You have Mario Alford as your backup? Yeah. Where's the loan for Sheldon Gibson?
0: I, I Good at it. Don't get me wrong. And, and was in the conversation. But and I know he had a touchdown against Baylor, I believe, in 2015. I think I remember that coming up in the Baylor game this year. That, that was the last time I had a big play like that. Um, but I think that was his only one. And Alford was just different. I think I would love to see a foot race between those two because when Alford could go, he could really go. Um, and that's a guy who probably should have been an inside receiver but was so good outside that he made sense outside. If he hit you in a post, he was gone. He was going to run by it, then he would catch it. Um, he was just a better a better player, I thought. Um, Gibson was fine. Um, Alford just – I just thought he was a different gear came a kickoff return.
1: I think my, my only counter to that, because looking at, you know, obviously Alford only had the two years, and if you say take – two years from Gibson, their numbers are almost identical as far as yardage. And I think Alford had two touchdowns, Gibson only one, mm-hmm. but wasn't that the two final years for Gibson, wasn't that when they made this, the change in the rule for the kickoffs to, to, discourage to, yeah, to discur- basically discourage kickoffs and it made it more difficult to return them. Or I, I felt like that was around that same time. Cause it's close. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just, that was my, I was trying to remember when they changed that rule. And I thought it was right before Gibson took over as kick returner. And that was a big reason he got the edge for me over Alford.
0: That's fair. Um, let's do some ghastly stats on punt return, though, because this is, I think, one of the hallmarks of the year of the decade is one, there are special teams. And I've said this a million times a special teams play could not just happen. It had to happen with some accompanying event, Um, an almost block, a block, a penalty, uh, a botch, a fumble, something. It seemed like always happened. If it wasn't, you certainly were living in fear of it. But the punt return thing was a disaster for the decade. And from 2010 to 2019, never really figured it out. Um, Leading returners by yardage, right? 93 yards. Brandon Hogan in 2011, 2010. Tavon 268, which is amazing in 2011, then Tavon again, 165 in 2012. Then it gets pretty bad. Ronald Carswell, 45 <laughs> yards, um, Alford did return a punt that year, lost two yards. Jordan Thompson took over when they kicked Carswell off the team, and by the sounds of it, I remember, Carswell kicked himself off the team, for acting like a knucklehead over the TCU game. Um, and then Jordan Thompson had 52 yards returning total in 2014. I believe that was also the year where they just said, we're gonna put 11 guys in the line of scrimmage and try to block the punt. We're not even gonna have a return man back anymore. That's how bad it got. And then 2015 begins the Gary Jennings era, where it was just, hey, try to catch it. You know what? Yeah. That's all it was. And that's why he rose to the as a freshman to the level of punt returner. Try to catch it. They did put KJ Dillon back there, and he was okay at it. Um, and he he was a really good hurdler and a pretty good athlete, even though he was bigger. in in high school, and he just demanded to do it. And they gave him a chance, and it was okay, but he only returned eight, and it basically became the Gary Jennings show for the next couple of years where he just caught the ball, and that was his contribution. And then they said, enough's enough of that. we got to make a play out of this. Our offense is way too good. We have too many skill guys. Let's try to do something happen. Try to make something happen. Marcus Sims gets a shot. Does okay with it. I remember they put Quincy Hall back there one time last year, and then it was mostly Sims and Sills, and it was just... If Sills gets it, catch it, right? And they wanted to have two guys back because they kicked it away from Sims. Let's just get the field position and have Sills catch it. If they kick it to Sims, maybe he could break one. And then this year, again, I just, again, one of the legacies of this season is how off I was on Alex Singfield. And I really thought he was going to matter on special teams. He returned nine punts for 38 yards this year, and they never had a chance on punt return this year, too. That's something they're going to have to work on, too. But I was stunned by – the talent I thought they had on special teams, and then how accurate my recollection of just how bad they were on, in particular, punt return.
1: Yeah, by the way, <clears throat> you mentioned how Marcus Sims was a, a good returner, and, and you're right. He was. Um, obviously, a kick return too, but uh, that decent punt return, market punt return, Marcus Sims in 2018, mm-hmm. 58 punt return yards.
0: Unbelievable. I mean, and we're talking <laughs> like, 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 three yards of return or something like that for good players. And it was yeah. and again, it's more than the return man, I get that, but they just never had that figured out. And if you look at it, that's a difference maker for a lot of teams. You know, you're gonna get if your defense is good, you're gonna get a punt in a good spot. And if you could add ten to twenty yards every time with a return or if you can score on it, you put your offense in such better situations. But it's kinda of scary when you think about how explosive West Virginia's offense was and how good it was how many games or seasons could have been flipped if they had a better punt return game and i don't think it's a i don't think it's a what if i think it's a why didn't it happen oh.
1: who knew that i was going to send us down the special teams rabbit hole that chewed up half of this podcast you knew i would <laughs> all right we went
0: way too long on this one here although probably appropriately long enough to Wrap up a decade on offense of West Virginia with, again, stars and statistics. um, I think more highs and lows and some pretty interesting conversations and debates to be had about, you know, the best units or the best players on units and how you rank. How do you rank 10 years and what, 128 games
1: of football? Um, Not easy, but I think we figured out how to do it. And with minimal fighting and way too many agreements on who makes that team, maybe defense will be better. Let's see if we can uh,
0: kumbaya our way to the defense one. I have a feeling that's going to be a little bit more difficult. But that is where we will pick up next time. Uh, When you press play, we will have our decade in review for the defense and how we line up our um, our two deep there. But that's all for this time. Uh, We will see you next time. I am Mike Casaza, And I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you later.